Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization and a growing community of like-minded stewards of the ocean. I'm John Sherman, the show's producer, and our president and host, as always, is Richard Hyman. Today's episode features Brian Adams, president and CEO of the Brain Institute of America. Brian explains the Institute's study of neurological disorders and malignancies of the brain and the risks of BPA and other chemicals found in our plastic food containers and bottles. For more information, episodes, and content, you can go onto futurefrogmen.org to see more. You can also find us on all social media at Future Frogmen. You can also find this podcast anywhere you find your podcasts. Today's episode is important, and it affects all of us. It's information that we all need to hear. So, let's get into it. Hey, Brian. It's uh, great to be with you this afternoon. Hi, Richard. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, You're the president and CEO of the Brain Institute of America, a biomedical research company based in New Haven, Connecticut. And your homepage says that you are working together to help those with neurological disorders. I believe your focus on this field stems from your childhood. Can you explain that to us? As you alluded to, yeah, I I started my research institute called the Brain Institute of America. Um, We focus on many different things, but uh, primarily the goal or the mission of the institute is to develop um, biomarkers, diagnostics, and therapeutics for individuals with certain types of brain cancer. Um, Stems from a bit of my own childhood experience, uh, family members uh, having issues with that particular disease, uh, even having friends, close friends actually, that um, experience the same situation. Uh, These are cancers that are um, quite high with respect to mortality. Um, and they leave devastating consequences for their friends and families because it's um, sort of an underfunded space, right? So we have a lot of funding in breast cancer and some other types of cancer, which is wonderful, great. We've made some really wonderful discoveries because of that. Um, The brain cancer space and some other neurologic disorders, like malignancies, I should say, a bit more difficult to treat. and uh, just because of the complex anatomy, uh, we don't know so much about the molecular mechanisms of the disease. So the goal of the Institute is really to change some of that conversation, change the direction of funding, and uh, try to create newness in that field and get some new ideas on how to solve a very complex problem. So that's the goal of the Institute. We do a number of other things too, but that's our primary focus. Yeah, and I should I should say that uh, one reason we wanted to uh, speak with you and uh, you and I are new acquaintances. Uh, one of our great volunteers, Hallie Berger, introduced us, which I'm happy about. Um, we at the Future Frogmen, one of our uh, uh, strategic areas of focus is plastic pollution, and we will soon be getting in this conversation into plastic and uh, some of the uh, dangers associated with it, things that... Uh, I think we're shocking to me and will be shocking to our audience. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you were just talking about the Institute, and uh, I wonder uh, if you might tell us a little bit more in detail about uh, some of the research you're doing relative to brain cancer and uh, cancer research in general. Sure. Um, so 
if you want to get into specifics, uh, you know, so I was trained more as a molecular biologist, uh, been in that space for 20 some odd years. Uh, there's so much about our genome that we know, but yet we still don't really understand. Uh, so my training specifically, uh, and this is a little deviating from the the BPA topic right now, or the plastics topic, but it could dovetail, um, is this understanding of something called a non-coding RNA. So in our cells, we have a genome. It's, it's encoded in something called deoxyribonucleic acid, or, or DNA. Uh, it's a double-stranded sugar phosphate backbone with some nucleic acid. Basically, it has all the genetic information that makes you, you. Um, and for the past 40 or 50 years, we've been diligent in studying that genetic information and trying to understand how that relates to certain diseases when that genetic information is misexpressed or misrepresented in a certain cell type or a certain number of cell types. Um, now, the, those that were instrumental in sort of discovering uh, DNA, the structure of DNA, the genetics of DNA, um, all that Watson and Crick era stuff that we love to talk about so much in science, um, what we tended to forget about over that same span of time was the contribution of another molecule. And it sort of got sidelined um, into being just a passenger of information. So it's almost as if a picture of a big distribution center or a big warehouse, you know, you have the computers in the center basically telling you we have to get these packages to point A and point B. How do we do it? Well, the cell has to use something else. It's called messenger RNA. And messenger RNA is like the people or the delivery vans or whatever it is. You get that information from the center of the cell to the cytoplasm. Okay, so the cell can make protein because you were basically ultimately functioning because you, you, you are a bag of protein, <laughs> right? So all your enzymes, all your cell structure, all that is all a protein. So there's a complex process by which the cell does this. And that's fine. We understand all of that. But a lot of RNA genes basically got sidelined and were called junk, basically called junk RNA. Because we didn't know what they did. They didn't really make a protein. They just sort of seemed to hang around. We didn't really understand it. So we kind of threw that away for the past 30 years. Um, there was a few researchers working on that. Um, and I'd say probably when I went to grad school was now, I think, a redawning of the RNA era. So we sort of had the discovery of small RNAs that actually were found to control actually regulate the amount of protein that was made in the cell. So we had now all of a sudden another class of genetic information that's still encoded in our genome. It doesn't make a protein, but yet it makes it stays an RNA and that RNA has regulatory function. So it's not, so you think of it this way, your DNA has all the genetic information and if all your genes were turned on all at once, it would be like New York City with all the traffic lights turned green, right? You would basically have a nightmare. Everything would be jammed up because there's no direction of any information. 
the regulatory information or regulatory RNA is almost like the stoplights or the traffic police or something like that that can control the flow of information. Really, really important. Um, and what we found is that those small RNAs um, are linked to cancer and a whole bunch of other disorders when they're not expressed properly or they're not functioning properly. Um, so um, I'd say in the past 20 years, uh, we've gone from understanding the fundamental principles of some of these RNAs all the way to developing therapeutics using RNA for very complex disorders. Um, we still haven't yet, yet done that actually for things that we know cause cancer that are actually protein coding genes. So the RNA field has moved way fast in the past 20 years. And we've actually developed some really good biomarkers, some really good therapeutics. And um, a good example is one company has developed a, a drug for Huntington's disease that does a, basically fixes a frame shift mutation in the, in the DNA, but it uses RNA to do it. Um, and, and so it gets around some other issues logistically. It actually helps with clinical design. There's some caveats to the field, but overall it has the potential to really solve some of these complex problems. And so that's what my, my group is focused on. We have some RNAs we think are good uh, drug discovery candidates, good biomarker candidates um, for a particular type of cancer called a glioblastoma, which is a stage four cancer, um, has a mortality rate, uh, median mortality rate of about a year, a year and a half uh, after diagnosis. Um, and it's been that way for about 20 or 30 years. So we are diligently trying to get funding and uh, expertise in that area to, to push some of our candidates along the, the pipeline. And um, I'm very humbled to be a part of that process and uh, grateful that we've had some, uh, a lot of community support. And this is just one of these, you know, another forum to kind of talk about what we do. And um, I'm glad I could kind of voice that today. Yeah, I like your analogies were uh, helpful uh, for for the, the layman, if you will, uh, the non-scientist. I, I think those are interesting analogies you made. I could kind of kind of picture those. Um, and when you say small RNAs, uh, is that somewhat synonymous with what I read to be your specific focus being non-coding RNAs? Yeah, that would be correct. So um, there's actually now different, to make it more complicated, unfortunately, there's actually different classes of non-coding RNA. So all that really means is um, we're, we were so trained to think that every gene, basically piece of genetic information in our DNA, eventually makes a protein. So we would say that a gene codes for a messenger RNA and that messenger RNA gets made into a protein. So we call that, we call those like coding genes because they, they code for a protein. Um, so non-coding RNA or non-coding genes are basically any class, any type of RNA that doesn't make a protein or doesn't eventually get turned into a protein. So a bulk of the work that I just talked about um, mechanism, drug discovery, all that stuff in a non-coding RNA space has actually been what we call small RNA because we can just intuitively understand now that a nucleotide sequence that is about maybe 200 nucleotides or less 
probably is not going to make a functional protein. Um, 200, well, what, uh, 100, let's say 180 divided by three, because every nucleotide in three makes an amino acid. Multiple amino acids makes a protein. You'd have a really, really small protein with a gene that only made like 200 or so nucleotides. Uh, so kind of intuitively understand that class of RNA. And I think this is why many investigators got back on the RNA bandwagon about 10 or 15 years ago, um, just because we can kind of conceptualize a biochemical pathway that makes a small RNA. So small RNAs are generally now classified as being 200 nucleotides or less. So that's nucleic acid. So that's like the sugar phosphate backbone with a nucleic acid on there. Um, 200 of those stitched together is uh, would code for a small RNA. Um, and that's where we get what we call microRNA. Um, and there's a whole biochemical process to that. But um, what we now know is that microRNAs are probably another 1% of the human genome, which is roughly about, oh, I should say that, I should probably say eh, two to, maybe two to 5% of the human genome. Protein coding genes themselves, the ones we like transcription factors like P53 and all those things that we know about are also about two to 5% of the genome. So um, we're working now in the past 10 years uh, on the in part of the genome that has taken us about 40 years to understand. So just to kind of put that in perspective. Um, so, so, but now enough people have jumped on the microRNA bandwagon. Uh, we know microRNAs cause a lot of problems. They are regulatory in function. They're supposed to be there for developmental purposes. Um, a lot of environmental factors actually can control microRNAs. And so it's a really just a fascinating topic. I could probably go on for hours about it. So I'll, I'll actually, <laughs> I'll yield the floor a little bit, but the, the reason why we bring it up is there's actually some very interesting article, articles about uh, small non-coding RNA as it relates to plastics actually, so. Yeah, we'll get into plastic in just a moment. And uh, although uh, I'm sure some of what you're saying is, is over the head of, uh, Myself, certainly, and, and some of our listeners, it, I, I think it's a really important foundation to hear what you do and to get some appreciation for the expertise. So I appreciate you going through that. Before we go to plastic, though, um, you had also mentioned uh, biomarkers. And at the risk of being redundant, I wanted to uh, state your mission and just see if there were any additional uh, comments that you wanted to make regarding uh, the work you're doing. And uh, I read your mission to be, your mission is to develop effective biomarkers for those with chronic neurological disorders, as well as malignancies of the brain. Um, and I know, uh, I don't know, I believe you're uh, either in phase one or heading towards a phase one, and then uh, subsequently you would be uh, aiming for a phase two. Can you can you comment on uh, on, on th those comments? Um, sure, I'll, uh, I can I can uh, speak to that a bit. Uh, um, so we have in, we've, from some lab studies, we've had um, some really good success with understanding certain genetic elements that are expressed in a tumor cell and not in normal cells. And so there's um, a really regimented and controlled process, <laughs> which is a good thing, um, to, to develop 
those pilot, what we call RNAs, into clinical therapeutics, or in this case, clinical biomarkers. I mean, the ultimate goal, and this is an ongoing process where we've been um, sort of having many discussions with clinicians and trying to understand the fastest uh, path or the most successful path to a FDA-approved biomarker panel. Um, I think in the, the brain cancer space and sort of the, the neurological space in general, the big challenge is detection. So um, as an analogy, you know, for breast cancer, maybe somebody feels that there's a lump in their, their, their breast and they go and they get a, a screening and they basically can, you know, understand that they have breast cancer or not. There's actually some really good genetic tests out there, BRCA1 as an example, to, to determine if you're maybe at risk for developing a certain type of breast cancer or ovarian cancer. Um, another good example of that is PSA, prostate-specific antigen. Uh, age of you know, 50 or something like this nature, you go get screened for that. Um, if you're positive, you basically get lumped into a group that, you know, would be follow-up screening for, you know, for prostate cancer. And whether or not it's good or bad, at least you have a diagnostic test, right, that kind of helps you understand if you're at risk or you're being screened more and so on and so forth. So the good thing with, the, the thing about cancer is that if you're screened or you detect it early enough, um, it's not a f as far along in progression, and it's probably easier to treat. It makes the job of the clinician a bit easier. Now, in the, in the, in the brain space, in the neurological space, it's very difficult to do that. Um, they don't really have a smoking gun, I, I don't think yet, that tells you that you're, you know, positive for a certain genetic element, and therefore you are, you know, 10 times more likely to get brain cancer, as an example. Um, most what happens is you would maybe get dizzy, you have a seizure, you have a headache, you go to the uh, neurologist or whatnot, and you get scanned, and then they find a tumor, you know, and then so that kind of um, goes down that process. So what we're trying to do is really develop some easy genetic tests, maybe some blood-based markers that could help us uh, sort of group people into high-risk and low-risk low categories for Brain cancer, neurologic, um, you know, other things such as Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and we think RNA is going to do this because um, we've actually shown that, and many other labs have actually shown this, that RNA genes can actually be way more correlated to these particular disorders than the things we've been working on that are protein coding. So, I think it's just that potential there that that sort of um, that newness, that new potential that we have some smarter ideas about what could tell us uh, about basically who's at risk for developing certain terminal illnesses. Well, Brian, thanks. That's uh, really interesting work that you're doing, and uh, I wish you a lot of success with it. Sounds like you're, you're well on your way, but an awful lot of work yet to be done as well. Um, now, we wanted to talk about plastic today as well and get into some of the... Uh, uh, some of the uh, clinical, uh, chemical uh, risks associated with at least certain uh, in ingredients, certain chemicals that are, are used in plastic. One that comes to mind is BPA, and I wonder, that's BPA. I wonder, Brian, if you would uh, share with us what that stands for and what it is. 
Uh, sure, Richard, thank you very much. Yeah, um, so uh, BPA is, uh, is a chemical, it's called bisphenol A. Um, it's basically a very simple chemical structure. It's two aromatic rings. So it's a carbon compound um, and, and they're stitched together by a carbon branch and they have some methane, methane on there. And on the aromatic ring, there's actually what's called a hydroxyl group. So it's um, it almost be thought of as a um, an alcohol, but it's really not. It's um, it's actually if you think about it, at the reason why they they use this in certain industries is that um, it can be molded. So bisphenol is actually um, a chemical, uh, organic chemical. This is carbon containing. Um, but it's used in manufacturing for, like you said, a lot of polycarbonate plastics, a lot of epoxy resins. Um, you know, you think of your water bottle or a drink container, um, a lot of those kind of things have uh, BPA in it. It's, it's basically because it's very malleable and you can use it as a coating in your plastic uh, containers. Um, another example is Tupperware. There could be some uh, BPA in there as well. There's obviously a push kind of get into this about plastics that don't have BPA in there. Um, but uh, in essence, though, it's just one of these kind of nasty chemicals that um, it, it's not, it's so, so ubiquitous, though, that we just don't know the, the risks of, of BPA. But very simply, bisphenol A is a carbon-containing compound that's used in pretty much almost all development of a polycarbonate-type plastic. So um, I'll stop there. Um, yeah, well, and preparing to speak with you, uh, I did a little bit of research and was startled. Uh, of course, we've heard about you know BPA-free and uh, usually associate that with things like water bottles, but uh, I had no idea that uh, BPA was used inside of cans. And for some reason, I was thinking something like soup cans, but then I realized that uh, also soda cans and things like that um, and then even feminine hygiene products, toiletries, thermal printer receipts, eyeglass lenses. Um, it, it's staggering, even some dental sealants and composites. Um, these all seem to be things that uh, could uh, add up. And uh, maybe you can explain to us the health effects of uh, what BPA and uh, other additives like that might uh, have on the human being. That's a, that's a really great point. Uh, you know, um, even I, I myself am a little startled. I just learned something too. I didn't, I thought I read somewhere about inside of soda cans and things of that nature, BPA is, uh, was in there. Um, it's, um, it's sort of probably stems from uh, some science about uh, packaging food in a, in a sterile manner and, and kind of keeping food fresh and, um, and things of this nature and, and dealing with some kind of resin that can actually be uh, handled during the manufacturing process so you can actually you know get a longer shelf life of some of your products um, so but uh, you know I'm not obviously the expert necessarily on what alternatives can be used to BPA. Uh, I don't even really think that we understood that 
BPA was toxic until um, some re later on research has been done in it uh, on that statement. <clears throat> so um, what I'd say is that uh, the big thing about BPA um, and why it has such um, it could actually be viewed as having such devastating effects is that you have to understand the chemistry of BPA, right? Um, BPA is in this group of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, these PAHs. Um, and what it really is at the end of the day is an endocrine disruptor, okay? So developmentally, right, we have what we call steroid hormones. This is kind of interesting. This brings me back to the work I did back in my graduate school days. Um, so estrogen, as an example, is a really important hormone that we all think of when we are talking about development for a female. When we talk about testosterone, we think of that for males. Uh, bisphenol A seems to have the similar properties as estrogen. And so it binds to the same receptors in your cells, in your body, that have a receptor for estradiol. So it mimics the growth properties of something like estrogen. And this is actually why something that is like BPA, that's so ubiquitous in the environment, means that developmentally or just passing and just who we are, we're now seeing a higher level of estrogenic-like compounds. And we're just not really clear as to how that relates to development of disorders or certain diseases, certain cancers, how it relates to our health, how it relates to our children's health. Um, so it's all about exposure, right? And so we're just having now more estrogen, the more bisphenol A. It just puts you at a higher risk for developing some of these, uh, what we like to call chronic disorders, but really bad things. So type 2 diabetes is an example. Um, maybe we just talked about it, maybe breast cancer, because that's an estrogen-dependent cancer. Um, number of cardiovascular uh, disorders, uh, actually... There's probably some linkages to the brain and brain development as well. So um, there is an ongoing effort in the scientific community to really understand the consequences of BPA um, on, in your body. And also from an epidemiological standpoint, how BPA is causally associated with certain disorders and seeing what the risk factor is really just get a gauge of, okay, surrounded by, on average, this amount of plastic, am I 10 times more likely to get a certain cancer? And, you know, am I not at all? What are the numbers? And so that kind of helps us as scientists understand what the link is. Is there a link? And if there is a link, if it's to a certain disease, then what's the mechanism of action? Um, obviously, we're, you know, we would obviously like to stress that we should reduce the, the amount of BPA in the environment since we now know that there's linkages to many of these disorders. Um, 
but from a mechanistic standpoint, it may also be very important to know how it really functions. So um, that's, uh, I mean, I probably answered some of your question and I probably went on to some other things, but essentially BPA is that endocrine disruptor. And so this is why it has many, many, many physiological consequences on our own bodies and why we worry about it in the environment. Yeah, no, that was uh, spot on. And uh, uh, just to repeat for our audience, uh, what, what you're talking about here mimics the structure and function of the hormone estrogen, and that can impact all kinds of things. It's a laundry list that's uh, quite terrifying. Growth, cell repair, reproduction, energy level, blood pressure, heart disease, as you said, type 2 diabetes, obesity. It's, uh, it's terrifying, uh, and uh, I, I'd say most of us are unknowingly exposing ourselves uh, we may be taking uh, safe precautions with certain things like a, uh, a reusable, safe water bottle, um, but uh, then other things we might be putting ourselves at risk at and we don't even know it. And meanwhile, the FDA says that it is safe, um, which is somewhat concerning. I'm sure, as you, as you stated, there are some benefits for uh, food preservation and so forth, but... Uh, we would hope that uh, science and research protects us as well. Now, you mentioned exposure and action, Brian, and uh, I know this is a little bit perhaps, uh, well, it's actually not really uh, that much removed from what you do um, because I, I did want to comment uh, that apparently there are now some replacements for BPA you could see BPA-free, but there's something called BPS and BPF. And uh, some of the readings I did say it may be just as bad, if not worse, than BPA. Have, have you had any experience, uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, uh, thank you, Richard. Yeah, I just wanted to circle back real quick and uh, just talk about something you just mentioned about the FDA. And uh, it's sort of... Uh, statement about how BPA is uh, safe. Um, they, it seems to always change over the years. Uh, I did pull up a study um, and there was a paper recently in JAMA. Um, it's a, obviously a, a well-known uh, historically clinically relevant journal. Um, and there was a, a study in which um, they did a survey from, I think, uh, 2015 to 2019, and they basically surveyed uh, individuals that were 20 years and older. Um, they did a whole bunch of stuff, right? They're trying to understand the nutrients they're taking in, their diet, their uh, exposure to BPA, all this stuff. And so how they did this was they essentially uh, took a urine test for individuals sometimes, um, and they looked for the level of BPA in those individuals. And they try to do a bunch of epidemiologic studies and they adjust for how old you are, if you're male or female, if you're a certain race, because all those can be kind of, um, they, they, those factors can be related to development of chronic disease. So statistically, you have to take care of those situations. When they kind of rule all that stuff out, what they basically found was that um, for those that had really high levels of 
urinary BPA, uh, those there was actually like a one and a half fold higher risk for all cause mortality, meaning that um, it, it's linked potentially you're a 1.5 fold higher risk for developing cancer or heart disease or whatever it is. Like it could be anything that they looked at, right? So if you break it down, it was um, still about a 1.5 fold risk for developing cardiovascular mortality. Um, and actually it was about a one fold risk increase for developing cancer mortality. Now, obviously this was a study of individuals I think there was about three, almost 4,000 adults. So it was a pretty massive study, but yet it was only about 4,000 individuals that were studied. But what it's telling us is that those with the um, highest level of BPA is still causing about a one and a half to maybe two-fold risk of developing heart disease. Um, so you know, it's, but it's not yet linked in that study to cancer necessarily. And I'm pretty sure if we pull up some of the papers, you'll find that there's a risk for developing cancer. There's a risk for developing diabetes. But I think what we should appreciate a little bit is I want, we want to inform our audience that these compounds are dangerous because they are endocrine disruptors. And we do know the physiology or how that physiology is disrupted. But the epidemiology is saying twofold risk, maybe, maybe sometimes threefold risk. Just to put in perspective, because we have to, I think we have to prevent, present a kind of a fair assessment here. Smoking gets you a 14 fold risk of developing lung cancer. 14 fold. So, it's not to say that twofold is not, not important. It's just to also say that we have a correlation um, that is there, but it's not as strong as some other things. So, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's also safe because we, we know we can put chemical on cells in the lab and we can actually alter their growth patterns, like he said. So, um, we don't, I don't want to scare everyone <laughs> to death basically worrying about it, but at the same time, there is a risk of developing certain disorders. Uh, um, but I just wanted to scale it appropriately just so everyone understands um, what the true risk is. But that's looking at, and that's very interesting that you bring this up also, that's looking at you and your generation and developing a certain disorder um, as your exposure to BPA. Um, you mentioned real quickly uh, the use of alternative plastics like bisphenol S and I guess it's bisphenol F. Um, it's still a phenol. Okay, it's very interesting, right? So it's still a chemical compound that is an aromatic hydrocarbon. So it's still, and I wish I, in this case, I probably should have shown a slide. It's still a, a, a carbon compound that has um, carbons and hydrogens and, and a ring format. So there's um, six carbons stitched together. It looks like a stop sign. Okay, if you wanted to draw the chemical structure of, uh, of, uh, of a phenol. Uh, but it has the hydroxyl group, it has that OH group on it. So it's reactive. Oxygen is very reactive, right? This is why actually water is actually really important. Water is actually a reactive molecule. Um, and I don't want to get into the chemistry of this because it might be on, be beyond the scope of the audience, but these things can react with your DNA as well. 
because there's actually a reactive group on, on the phenol. So whether there's a carbon there making it bisphenol A that links the two aromatic carbons together, whether there's a sulfur group there, which is the bisphenol S, whether the fluoride group in there because of the bisphenol F, it's still, you have aromatic compounds. You have these ring structures um, that have an alcohol group on it, a hydroxyl group. So it's still a reactive hydrocarbon. And I, I, and I bet that if we do enough study, we'll probably find similar trends, that there'll be estrogenic-like effects of BPF and BPS. They will, there will be um, you know, effects related to heart disease and type 2 diabetes. Um, I still think they're going to be down the same molecular pathway. So um, I think immediately what we should be doing is if we're really going to start using alternatives to plastics rather than avoiding plastics altogether, we should really be doing a better job researching the alternatives to these compounds in the lab while we're kind of developing them in, in the manufacturing process. So we don't have to keep going back and kind of going and going, you know, oh, 10 years later, oh, we didn't really know that there was so much of these uh, effects with this compound. Um, we're smart as scientists, we should understand that these are a family member of compounds. They should all probably have the same compound. It speaks more, I think, to funding some really good scientific research onto the alternatives of plastics and just kind of maybe even research into how we can avoid some use of these bisphenols in general. That's what I would speak to, to that. I'll let you ask, maybe if you wanna ask another question or reframe something, I, I, I can speak to something else as well. Sure. But, um, that, that would, sure. Yeah, that would be your answer to the alternatives. No, and that's good. I, I appreciate you uh, uh, going back and uh, uh, offering some uh, clarification there and perspective. Um, and it's funny, as you were explaining that, you were saying 1.5 and two times, and I'm thinking, wow, that's alarming. And then you said smoking at 14 times. So that does put it in perspective. Um, but of course, we don't want to do anything if we can help it to increase our our risk um, of, of cancer and other uh, health matters, uh, certainly. Um, I guess a couple of practical points I wanted to share with the audience. Uh, one is that uh, apparently if uh, a, a plastic bottle or uh, item is not labeled um, BPA-free um, or not labeled at all, uh, be advised that some, but not all, plastics marked with a recycle code of three or seven may be made with BPA or BPS and BPF. That's uh, according to some, some reading uh, I, I did, which I think uh, uh, from the Mayo Clinic, so uh, it should be credible. just wanted to share that with you. Um, we already talked about canned foods, but it seems like uh, there's an opportunity to reduce your exposure by not overdoing it with canned foods. And Brian, I, I, I uh, have a kind of a, I wonder if you can weigh in on this one. Um, they also said, don't put polycarbonate plastics in the microwave or dishwasher. Um, I, I would say that's um, pretty obvious you wouldn't do that in the microwave. Um, but it makes me think about, I've got a, a, a small collection of uh, plastic containers right in front of me that I took from our kitchen that 
we use uh, quite frequently to take leftovers and uh, store in the refrigerator instead of using um, extra plastic wrap. And uh, I would think that, uh, I would hope that these would not be leaching anything. It's interesting because most of them come from a company that's called P-A-C-T-I-V, Pactive, I guess. Um, and uh, I was looking at the, uh, yeah, these are number five. They're typically rank, uh, either unmarked or, or number five. So uh, it's a little disconcerting because you're trying to do the right thing by saving plastic. But uh, um, I would think you're at high risk if you put them in the microwave. Um, we do put them through the dishwasher, so whether that creates some sort of uh, impact that would then have a residue that goes on your food, I don't know. Um, any any possible thoughts on that? Uh, that's an interesting point. You make it, you know, it bring it brings us back to maybe why we develop some of these types of epoxy resins or the polycarbonates, right? The type of plastic is more malleable, right? And so. Um, you think of the water bottle as easy toss away, right? Or, but also at the same time, if you think about it, it's more easily recyclable because it is more malleable. You can kind of melt that down or break it apart and use it into some other products. Um, whereas maybe the Tupperware is a little tougher to do because the melting point may be different and so on and so forth. That's, when you were mentioning that, my mind just kind of deviated a little bit. It's sort of one of those to develop plastics, but then have a way of recycling those plastics because of the innate properties <laughs> of, of the actual polycarbonate plastic itself. Um, you don't typically think of, like you just said, like historically recycling your Tupperware. You mostly, people think about recycling their water bottles per se, uh, and it's different classification of um, uh, a recyclable number, three and seven versus five. Actually, I'm not too up to date with all of the numbers about what can be recyclable and whatnot. But you're also interesting, you raise a good point about um, maybe dosing or exposure to BPA. So if there was any polycarbonate um, in the Tupperware, for an example, if that was the case, um, they probably recommend um, not using it in the dishwasher, maybe because of the leaching, the repeated use of the plastic and the leaching of the uh, BPA uh, in your Tupperware. Um, and that's a little different than, I guess, you as a consumer having, you know, a drink of water from a water bottle and then just kind of toss it away the water bottle. You're not really going to microwave your, maybe, maybe some people do microwave stuff in the, in, in the stuff with the water bottle or whatnot, but, um, you know, it's all about uh, breaking down that plastic. So heat is a form of energy um, that it can be used uh, for many, obviously the manufacturing process, but when you put something in the microwave, you're putting, it's a, it's a development at risk of breaking down that plastic and releasing some BPA. Yeah. So uh, it, that and also, you know, you'll notice that the plastic will melt if you're obviously, um, you know, microwaving something too long. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? I, I have no idea, but, you know, I was doing some research too and thought it said something about uh, BPA being in some forms of Tupperware, but it, I did not know about the recycle code uh, that would make it more likely an item would have BPA in it or, or not. Yeah, and, uh, and of, these are not specifically Tupperware, but uh, it's a good analogy. And uh, as you were speaking, I also took a quick look at these four containers, and each one of them says microwave safe, which 
I think, you know, for our listeners, uh, you know, try to use common sense. I wouldn't put any of these in the microwave ever. I'm just worried about put, even putting them in a dishwasher with heated drying, you know. But uh, that kind of brings us to uh, alternatives that are out there that I think we all know. Um, and some of them are maybe kind of old school, before plastic really existed. But glass, porcelain, stainless steel containers for hot foods and liquids, uh, those are all options instead of plastic containers that uh, might have uh, some beneficial impact, uh, at least avoid detrimental impact on, on your health and your family's health. So, Brian, it's been really interesting uh, getting at least a, a brief exposure to the incredible work you're doing, and uh, uh, thanks for educating us about uh, BPA and the chemistry. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Um, actually, there was just two things. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of a deviation, but um, my curiosity now, after doing some research with you and trying to understand BPA, is, um, you know, in the lab, we use a lot of plastics that are uh, – instead of it being uh, polycarbonate-based, it's actually polypropylene-based or polyethylene-based. Uh, I'm not sure about the use of those types of plastics in consumer products. Um, and it might be a, you know, if, if some of our listeners or if, if we wanted to at some point do a follow-up, we can maybe do a, a study to figure out <laughs> if, if those other types of plastics are actually used in consumer products. So polyethylene and, and um, poly um, uh, polyethylene are yeah, polyethylene and polypropylene are two other types of plastics. The different consistency, different like they're not as malleable, I guess. But um, maybe if we can't get away from plastics immediately, um, you know, it, it might be an, a quicker alternative than using a different type of polycarbonate plastic. But I just wanted to also circle back a little bit because you did mention um, if there's anything else. And I found this very, very fascinating. Um, I didn't really even know this. And I am an RNA biologist. And so we, we did mention a little bit that some of the BPA re research has said you're at maybe twofold risk for developing certain types of chronic illnesses. But what's very interesting is that if we go back and understand that BPA is an endocrine disruptor, certain researchers have done, not so much in the human research space, but what they can do when they've been studying this for coastal studies or organisms that may live in our waterways, um, they've actually found some really shocking results. And, and what that is, is they use a model called the zebrafish. Um, a zebrafish is basically a small fish striped uh, in color, um, but it's easy to maintain in the lab. Um, the generation, they grow pretty quickly. They can do some genetic studies on the um, on fish and understand how certain chemicals, how certain water environments uh, affect the reproductive behaviors of the fish. And what they found is that when you grow, uh, grow fish in these settings and change the concentration of BPA in the water, um, you actually have what's called transgenerational effects. So it's a very fascinating concept. What it means is that the plastic is not necessarily having an effect on the growth or the BMI, the body mass index of the fish in the first generation stage, meaning like I got exposed to it, 
doesn't affect my growth pattern because maybe I'm already an adult. But then when I have my children or whatever it may be, if there's um, you know a really high concentration, that's very really key. Very high concentration of BPA in the water actually affect the fertility of the F2 generation meaning the, the, the next generation after us. So that brings up a whole nother mechanism that I think, you know, we're not really talking about here and it's kind of complex. But the reason why I find that very fascinating as an RNA biologist is that RNA tends to explain some of the things that we didn't understand uh, about like familial genetics and maybe why certain family members are at risk for developing certain things and not others. Um, and we could never really find that in the DNA. We would do these massive studies and try to find mutations and genes and say, oh, you're at risk for Alzheimer's and kind of find that, that, that critical gene that does it. We just can't seem to do that. Or a good example, maybe more in Parkinsonian's diseases. Um, but when cells reproduce and they grow and they replicate and you pass the information on to the next of kin kind of thing, right? Your offspring, um, RNA is actually passed on to that also that daughter cell. And so there's actually genetic information that's maintained throughout your, your, your the two generations. And what they found is that there's actually some micro RNAs, these small non-coding RNAs, that are changed dramatically when you're at high exposure for BPA. And that those microRNAs and those non other non-coding RNAs control those sort of in other mechanisms that we can study in the lab, in independent of BPA, that they actually control the, some transgenerational fertility. So it's a little bit causal in the lab still, but it's interesting that they find these transgenerational effects, these F2 generations, um, you know, fertility decreases happen in, in the fish, um, but that it's affecting non-coding RNA, and that non-coding RNA is actually the mechanism um, by which the plastic is disrupting. And so I think we actually, there is actually where we need to put more of our emphasis on, um, and, and that would actually then mean we don't know the full consequences of BPA that may be already in our waterways. So, um, so I didn't want to scare people, but at the same time, I want to leave a mention of, you know, if we can avoid plastics usage, if we can, I think that's obviously um, always the better way to go. Uh, I think we should preserve our, our ocean ways or waterways as best we can. We should all be good stewards of our environment. Um, but we should also be funding some of this really interesting research that tells us this is how these chemicals work. And so uh, if we really want to develop sustainable alternatives, I think we still need to understand how the bad stuff works. <laughs> we don't want to make the same mistake with replacing another alternative plastic that causes the same problem. Yeah, exactly. I'm reminded your, your story there about the, uh, the fish is reminding me of, uh, I don't know if it's um, BPA related. Uh, I'd have to do a little more research, but uh, two weeks ago we had a uh, podcast episode with a wonderful Native American woman named Suta Calling Last, and it's on our website. It's called Dark Water, and uh, 
she talked about a particular Indian uh, tribe, Native American tribe, that uh, is experiencing some bizarre um, changes to the infants, uh, the fetuses in utero, um, where they're, they start out as a boy and then like 75% of them or some high percent is, is changing to a, a girl, to a female in utero and it, it it's apparently tied to to, to uh, something presumably in the environment um, so that that's going to be I'm going to look into that a little bit uh, further um, and the, our listeners might want to check that out uh, it was a staggering scary fact um, and uh, Suda talked about a, a lot of contaminants in our waterways uh, in our drinking water but uh, yeah, Brian. I'm also reminded. I appreciate you bringing up the uh, the stewardship aspect because uh, that's what we do at Future Frogmen. And I had the uh, opportunity last fall to moderate a panel at MIT, a, a two day summit dedicated to plastic. Um, and uh, MIT Water is the student club, an amazing club, and uh, an amazing two day summit in person in Cambridge, Mass. And uh, our panel was focused on health and ecological impacts of plastic in water. And uh, brilliant um, uh, chemist from University of Illinois, we actually did a podcast with him. And uh, uh, we had a, a wonderful representative from uh, the EAP, EPA, uh, as well as from NOAA. And uh, they and others in this two-day session, one thing that was staggering to me, and I think really across the board is how much we don't know uh, when we talk about the oceans and the, the impact of plastic in the oceans. Uh, really a lot of talented people working on it and, and, and learning, figuring things out, but there's so much yet to be done. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit comforted by the work you're doing because uh, it, it, it seems like you are making inroads. Um, but it, it all, to me, it all, it's all connected. It's something we, we constantly seem to be saying. Everything's connected. And if you can reduce your plastic usage and responsibly dispose of it, um, you will help the broader environment and uh, your usage will help, help yourself and your family. So I think with that, Brian, it's been very informative. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Richard, for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you know, this uh, allowed me this this sort of podcast uh, event kind of allowed me to learn a little bit about plastic as well, and uh, uh, taught me something about my own field related to RNA. So uh, it was a great opportunity. Um, uh, I would be more than happy to hop on at any point if you need any more discussion about RNA or brain health or plastics or what may, whatever it may be but uh, thank you very much for the opportunity it was a, it was a great time okay awesome and uh, if uh, folks listening would like to uh, check out Brian's work uh, it's the Brain Institute of America in New Haven Connecticut you can find them on the web and uh, you can learn more there so thanks again so great to have you as a guest Thanks for listening to the Blue Earth Podcast. Please let us know how we're doing by rating and reviewing the show and check out our website at futurefrogman.org for more information. We release the show every Monday. So until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thank you.